What is the women loving women movement in India? Can friendships be revolutionary? And what are the limitations of legislative change when it comes to LGBT plus rights? Hi, this is Shishti and you're listening to the In Perspective podcast, where academics reveal little-known facts about Indian history, society and culture. In this episode, we're taking you back to a conversation from September 2020 when we spoke to sociologist Dr. Niharika Banerjee. So to start off with, um, we wanted to ask you about um, sexuality studies globally and whether you think there is an invisibilization of um, certain sexualities that do not follow categorizations, especially in the global South. And uh, does transnational feminist queer research hold radical possibilities in addressing some of those power dynamics and research hierarchies? So to uh, address your question, um, let me first, you know, give a little bit of uh, brief outline as to what sexuality studies is, or rather how I approach uh, the field. You know, it is an interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary field that looks at the question of uh, power and experience uh, through the lens of gender sexuality. Uh, but as it also intersects with race, class, caste, religion, ability, location, and such. Now, uh, by and large, sexuality studies, uh, you know, is premised on an understanding that categorizations uh, are both uh, enabling as well as limiting. Uh, so, uh, enabling uh, because, you know, a categorization can help to make intelligible uh, name and experience and with that, you know, seek out persons with other similar experiences and from that uh, seek collective recognition through that process, uh, demand rights accordingly uh, and, you know, fight against discrimination and so on. Uh, but at the same time, categorizations are also limiting because they typically do not make intelligible the complex range of experiences that human beings live. And so, you know, uh, the categorizations that are used in, you know, rights framework, in asking for, uh, you know, anti-discrimination policies, et cetera, uh, may also be limiting to that uh, extent. And so sexuality studies as a field is located within this tension of uh, work that emerges uh, in this field are constantly referring to this tension of categorizations that are both enabling as well as limiting. Uh, so for instance, you know, uh, work from the global south have pointed to the term, you know, pointed to the fact that terms such as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender uh, do not necessarily cover the wide range of practices and expressions that human beings who are otherwise outside of the familiar heterosexual matrix follow. So for instance, you know, sometimes, uh, so for, you know, while uh, uh, some terms as shamukami, you know, in Bengali are direct transliterations of the term same-sex desire, um, 
there are many others such as let's say koti panthi double decker etc which do not even work within the familiar rubric of lgbtq so you know we have to understand there are these different idiomatic expressions uh, that uh, uh, do that escape the familiar categorizations and sexuality studies is most fruitful when it works within this uh, attention um now as far as uh, you know your second uh, question about the uh, role of transnational feminist queer research is concerned uh transnational feminist queer research first of all i should point out it is not an isolated enterprise uh but you know it builds upon the vast body of both uh, transnational feminist studies on one hand and queer studies uh, on the other to contest uh, different kinds of power dynamics and hierarchies between researcher and researched subject and object academia and activism global north global south and so on but the interesting thing is that if we consider this uh, you know this frame of transnational feminist queer research in abstraction uh you know just as a kind of a theoretical frame uh then it becomes you know an essentialist universalized endeavor to delineate certain parameters which then one would need to apply in a specified format right so that is something that you know we need to avoid but if we can see it as a route uh you know through which one uh, may travel to move beyond comparative research uh which is because comparative research is typically based on discrete units that you compare two discrete units so if we use uh, this lens to uh, uh as i said use it as a route which i can then uh, travel through to move beyond comparative research then it holds possibilities to you know re uh, uh, rework configurations of power between those binaries that i mentioned between global north global south researcher researched academic activist in the production of knowledge absolutely and i think it's it's really uh, wonderful to start off the conversation with locating this uh, tension between you know whether categorization is enabling or limiting so um i wanted to sort of ask you about uh, lesbian feminisms and what place do they occupy within post colonial feminism and the movement for lgbt rights and if you could particularly talk about um you know this idea that some people see it as limiting but you've written about how it's it's not really limit, limiting and and holds radical possibilities yeah so uh, first of all uh, you know um, let me uh, make a distinction between um, uh post colonial feminism and uh, lesbian feminism now post colonial feminism you know specifically addresses uh the legacies of colonialism in an understanding of gender and uh and that is its you know very basic uh, uh premise and basic project from which of course we have a wide understanding uh, uh around you know that but lesbian feminism really of course you know uh, uh may in addition to other factors look at histories of colonialism in the understanding of gender 
but it is uh, uh, you know it it is also uh, uh, i would say in conversation with post colonial feminism in certain instances depending on the project that one is working on rather than uh, being a part of it now um, you know to elaborate lesbian feminisms really uh, you know is an epistemological route a way of uh, producing knowledge uh, that you know helps to or enables the in investigation of heteropatriarchies that define our everyday lives especially those of women but women of course understood as a gendered category uh, and not something that is uninterrogated um you know now having said that it is not an all encompassing category again that will help explain only one form of heteropatriarchy so hetero you know just as you know patriarchies and heteropatriarchies are uh, plural uh, and uh, they are dependent on local and contextual discourses and experiences of which colonialism you know will be a part of um and but this conceptual frame lesbian feminisms you know has a specific anglo american history uh where it uh, emerged in response to the lack of recognition of lesbian concerns within second wave feminism and gay liberation movements in the 1960s and 1970s so the term has a very uh, anglo american uh, uh, you know uh, root now uh, but of course this term has traveled uh, you know within uh, 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 academic circles as well uh, but of course we have to remember that even though this term uh, um, is an academic category but yet it it has its roots as i said in the struggles of lesbians in the anglo american context to get a place within the larger feminist movement in the 1960s and 70s but in the context of india the term has very little traction i mean the term lesbian and the term feminism when you put them together uh, as an analytical category the term has very little traction uh, but the term you know but the connections between if we break it down then we'll see that the connections between uh, lesbian activisms and larger feminist movements within the context of india are inextricably linked uh where you know lesbian activisms uh and uh, writing around that uh struggles around that uh, acquired a voice and form in conversation with larger women's movement and feminist movements in general so uh you know but familiarly uh, what we understand in our context uh, uh this uh, you know movement uh, and this analytical frame in terms of queer feminism rather than lesbian feminism right uh so familiarly understood as queer feminism this voice this lesbian feminist voice has served to question the dominant subject of feminist politics so who is the dominant subject of feminist politics that is an abiding question you know in across uh, feminist movements in uh, uh, you know both the anglo american uh, uh, and larger you know uh, uh, 
South Asian context and in other parts of the world as well. And in our countries coming back to our context, you know, bringing a lesbian perspective and standpoint to feminist politics. That has been the, you know, uh, 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 place of uh, queer feminism in particular and lesbian feminism in general. Now, interestingly, there are various terms, of course, that has been used. So in the early uh, days of, uh, you know, this uh, struggle, you know, in the uh, uh, late 80s, 90s, uh, early to, you know, specifically from the, you know, 90s onwards, the term women loving women uh, word, uh, was very uh, uh, popularly used in order to uh, bring in the subject of, uh, you know, an additional understanding to feminist politics through the route of uh, lesbian feminism in general and queer feminisms in particular. Um, so, you know, those who call themselves uh, um, women loving women uh, and who were also aligned with feminist politics within the larger women's movement uh, in general and autonomous uh, women's movement in particular, they work to specifically broaden the understanding of gender oppression by highlighting the narratives of violence faced by persons who strayed from normative scripts of gender assignment. Um, so therefore, that was the primary, you know, the violence was the connecting key, violence and gender oppression. That was the possibility that, you know, lesbian uh, feminist politics allowed uh, in, in our, in, you know, in our context. And at the time, women loving women had to contend with a hierarchy of violence within women's movements, you know, so contending with issues of dowry debts, domestic violence, poverty, and uh, struggled to recognize violence around the question of desire and pleasure. So issues such as corrective rape, issues such as, you know, uh, uh, homelessness, issues such as forced marriage. These were some of the things that lesbian uh, feminists or queer feminists uh, brought into uh, the women's uh, movements in particular and feminist movements in general. So are there specific, um, you know, organizations or specific um, people or specific, I mean, I think it might be helpful for us to just, um, if you could tell us a little bit about um, the atmosphere at the time which resulted in, you know, the discourse around women loving women and this mm -hmm. need to spotlight, uh, you know, this kind of violence. What really brought uh, this uh, kind of politics to the fore uh, was the release of the film Fire, which uh, basically uh, brought in uh, or initiated a lot of backlash from the right wing uh, shifts in uh, at the time. And then it is against that backlash that uh, women, uh, actually women loving women took to the streets. There's a recorded history of that. And uh, that was one of the first, you know, moments of quote unquote public visibility where uh, within the larger women's movement where they said that, uh, uh, you know, where one could see the creation of a larger community, so to speak, uh, of uh, women loving women. So, the, the, you know, uh, in the late 1990s, fire uh, in 1998 became a very turning point in uh, lesbian feminist politics in general and queer feminist politics in particular. 
to talk a little bit about legislative change. Um, you know, it's been two years since Section 377 was read down, and recently there has been some amount of uh, division within the community about steps forward in terms of the recognition of equal rights to marry and adopt, while, you know, um, some people are advocating for it, others are critical of falling within and, uh, you know, adhering to this sort of a framework. But um, if you could, within this context, talk about, you know, what legislative change around the world means and what are the limits of legislative change to address exclusion. I thought it'd be really interesting to have that in conversation with some of these um, conversations that um, are being had lately. So, you know, um, legislative change, uh, legislation, you know, equalities, legislation and legislative change, this uh, we know lies within the larger rights-based framework. And uh, typically, you know, these are used as a marker of progress and development uh, of, you know, uh, a nation in general and of uh, marginalized communities in particular, right? So, and the, you know, the thrust is or the attempt for uh, um, organizations, collectives that are working within rights-based framework is to secure these, uh, uh, you know, legislative and anti-discriminatory policies in order to gain protection from violence and discrimination, both in the domestic space, in the workplace, and in public space. Now, uh, but what we also see is that, um, uh, you know, there are two things that uh, are, you know, happen. One is that uh, legislative changes when they are used as a marker of progress and development by uh, nations to, uh, to you know, mark which nations are forward and which nations are backward and deciding development aid according to that. Then it becomes neo-colonial tool of you know, uh, uh, creating certain uh, geographic comparisons and discriminatory actions related to that. So, you know, for instance, uh, uh, let's take Kenya, for example, which does not have recognition uh, of, uh, you know, which actually penalizes uh, same gender uh, desires, right? Uh, But if, let's say, a country were to uh, stop development aid to Kenya because of that, because Kenya is not in the list of uh, nations, then, of course, that would be a tool to uh, both materially and discursively mark this nation as backward. And that would fall into the neocolonial uh, uh, discourse and rhetoric of who is forward, who is backward, and so on and so forth. So, so that is definitely problematic. And secondly, one also sees that even in places, let's say, like the United Kingdom, where, uh, you know, equalities have been won, right? Uh, even in, in nations where, you know, these equalities legislations have uh, been won, uh, we have seen in research that, you know, these are differentially implemented and the people who get benefit from these are more who are uh, part of the dominant group in terms of their racial and class positions and so on. So therefore, uh, you know, uh, legislations are very 
useful they are very needed they are absolutely needed but they are also not the panacea for creating anti discriminatory environments um and therefore you know legislative change only goes so far and cannot address the discrimination also in everyday living arrangements of lgbtqi uh, identified persons and this is something that you know uh, in our work me and my colleagues therefore we tried to uh, you know map uh, different kinds of um you know experiences of living as an lgbt uh, uh, q identified persons um across the field of equalities legislation so what we saw is that you know people who uh, in the indian context for example at the time did not have uh, certain legislations and still do not do um are living um uh, worthwhile lives legislation is really not doing much for them uh, they don't anticipate that legislation will improve their lives or let's say in people you know in places in england who have legislation but they are still facing a lot of discrimination so therefore there is always this enabling and uh, uh, you know irrelevant point to legislation that uh, works uh, in in the case of Uh, marginalized communities like uh, lgbtqi persons absolutely and i think that's an um, important framework to keep in mind while like you said understanding fully the importance of um legislative change in and of itself why that can't be seen as you know the be all and end all of anti discrimination environments um i also wanted to ask you about you've sort of uh, if you could tell us a little bit about this critique of this pursuit of happiness this idea of this mm-hmm. pursuit of happiness by queer theorists and um what does it mean to put the livability of um lgbtq plus lives in conversation with these critical engagements with happiness uh i mean you briefly spoke about how you you know through through the study that you did looked at um mm-hmm. livability so if you could talk a little bit about this if if we take the dominant idea of happiness uh and the dominant idea of happiness that is uh, you know it, it it of course it is not again one dominant idea but depending on what context and culture one is located in um happiness the dominant idea can shift historically and culturally but whatever the substantive content of the dominant idea is uh the dominant idea of happiness typically emerges as an unquestioned goal in life right so you were so at a very basic level you're born uh then you get an education then you grow up and then you inevitably marry you inevitably reproduce um and you acquire some wealth uh and then you pass on that wealth and then you know in the indian context you pass on your uh, uh caste lineage as well um and then you die so right it's an so it's 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 a, that is this unquestioned goal for life uh now this critique of happiness uh you know um it it is it really has a long tradition um in 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 different philosophical uh uh, uh you know uh, discourses uh and also psychological uh discourses um 
and also developmental discourses that how is happiness measured, what, what are these social economic measures of happiness, so on and so forth. And, you know, LGBTQI uh, movements um, at times also work with this measure of happiness. And therefore, often uh, there is a, a need uh, to, um, you know, seek those an inclusion in those dominant measures because typically, you know, uh, um, LGBTQI people have been excluded from these measures of happiness. So, so therefore, you know, the right to marry, the right to adopt, the right to inherit, inherit property, the right for visitation, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, becomes a kind of a demand to in, be included within, uh, uh, you know, the recognized structure. And of course, side by side, while that is important, there has also been a critique of that uh, because, uh, you know, uh, what we have seen is that that also leads to a certain, uh, uh, I mean, wh while it leads to a certain, a certain kind of inclusion with the, let's say, with the receipt of certain positive legislations that helps one to be included in this happy life uh, that would in include the right to marry, the right to inherit, the right to adopt, and so on and so forth. On the other hand, uh, you know, uh, we also see critiques of that because it leads to a reproduction of the same structure that has denied me those uh, uh, rights in the first place. And therefore, you have the term heteronormativity, you know, which emerges from, uh, uh, from this, uh, uh, you know, need to be included in this right to happiness. Now, um, um, so therefore, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the critique therefore uh, emerges from within this departure point, within this uh, uh, point, and uh, it, it specifically focuses on the neoliberal, you know, forms of governance, the neoliberal modes of happiness, that demand that there is only one way to live a life, irrespective of whether you are, uh, you know, uh, uh, LGBTQI or heterosexual, and so on and so forth. So, therefore, you know, incorporating all the different ways of life into one mode of happiness, and the critique uh, starts there. Now, uh, you know, uh, of course, some you know scholars and some uh, critiques. Uh, activists have argued that, you know, the production and maintenance of these dominant forms of happiness, you know, are linked again to the desires of states and corporations uh, to develop very stable worker citizens. So therefore, you know, I, even if you're a lesbian, I allow you that, and therefore you become the compliant worker citizen. And, uh, uh, I don't care about whether you're a lesbian or not anymore, right? As long as you conform to the dominant idea of happiness. So therefore, uh, this, um, you know, this, this, uh, uh, and, and from the point of the, you know, view of the, um, uh, uh, from the point of the view of the, uh, 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 you know, uh, dominant group, uh, if I uh, stick to your idea, you know, if you stick to my idea of happiness, then if you stick to my idea of a particular script of happiness, right, then you will get some rewards, right? 
and um, so in other words if you do this you know as sarah hamed has said in 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 her promise of happiness if you do this or if you do that then happiness will follow right so even if you are an lgbtqi identified persons there are certain scripts you will have to follow in order to be that happy person now uh, what happens is that the more i conform to that the more i therefore become that happy being right uh, the script that you know has marginalized me in the first place keeps itself secured through the quote unquote cooptation of that otherwise marginalized subject into the script of happiness now this is you know this is a very compelling critique because uh, you know uh, um, interestingly this has helped us to understand that while same sex marriage for example uh, which on the one hand helps you know provides a certain kind of happiness in terms of helping to secure certain economic and legal parity but it can also become a very exclusionary normative force because there may be people uh, you know lgbtq identified people who may not want to marry who may want to remain sig- single uh, who may actually you know further by remaining single or by not wanting to marry uh, uh, actually would uh, not be part of the script um, so therefore uh, you know this uh, is uh, something that uh, we also saw in our work we also saw in our research on livability that um, what many uh, of our you know of our uh, uh, friends colleagues participants etc were saying that uh, happiness for me does not lie in the inclusion of a certain kind of uh, um, you know uh, uh, normative idea of uh, uh, what is a happy life but i would rather uh, uh, you know live a life that is worth living which may include not getting married which may include being single which may include some kind of a struggle to continuously contest and be in a contestation of dominating a sorry of critiquing dominant scripts and that is where my livability lies so my livability is not about trying to acquire a normative idea of happiness but my livability is about you know trying to uh, uh, be able to be in a position to actually live outside the normative script that is given to me so therefore livability here is a form of struggle that exists you know between living and surviving it is beyond happiness and uh, through a struggle now struggle isn't glorified here it's not a glorification of struggle but it is a reality it could be a material psychological emotional reality that may not conform to the dominant uh, idea uh, of happiness Absolutely. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. yeah, it definitely does. And I think it's going to be a very um, helpful framework for people to think about because I think a lot of times outside of academia, we don't really question these ideas of, you know, happiness, of, of what a happy life is supposed to look like and, and how that can weigh you down and how even in critiquing that you're not, you know, the ways in which you don't necessarily move away from that. Um, and uh, so sort of in a related light, um, could we talk about friendship and whether friendship is political and what political possibilities do friendship hold when it uh, 
comes to social justice movements? Yeah, so, uh, you know, by definition, you know, in a very basic uh, uh, sense, the basic premise of friendship is that it's a kind of a relationality. It's a relation between, uh, you know, more than one person. Um, and this, uh, so, and, and, and which is outside of uh, the ties of blood, marriage, lineage, and so on, right? Now, if we keep this in mind, that it is, um, you know, when friendships uh, happen between, you know, outside of the ties of blood, uh, marriage, uh, lineage, then it become political, it can become, you know, political when it actually, by its very living, by its very relationality, challenges the hierarchies, let's say, of gender, class, caste, race, and so on, right? Um, so friendship, you know, when friendship happens, when this relationality typically happens within people of the same background, uh, you know, uh, where there isn't much difference between these persons who are in this relationality, um, then um, there is little chance of it being political. But let's say when, you know, there is this relationality that happens across race, across caste, across class, across genders, um, you know, within, uh, and if it, if it also has an element of eroticism, desire, pleasure, uh, romantic erotic love uh, within same genders, across castes, um, then, of course, it has the possibility of being political when it is forged through caste, cross-racial, same-gendered, non-marital and blood ties, right? Um, so uh, it can, you know, have a political possibility of disrupting the uh, Brahminical, heteropatriarchal, the racialized ordering of life, absolutely. Uh, and what we see is that, see that in case of social justice movements, you know, movements, whether we are looking at movements uh, uh, in, in, you know, um, in queer movements, in anti-caste movements, uh, in, you know, uh, sex workers movements, uh, and so on and so forth, we see that uh, the friendships that have been forged uh, have not only allowed to, you know, create a certain, you know, have not only allowed to create certain spaces of endurance, and sustainability to shield oneself from the, uh, you know, from the violences of life. So it's just not a protective cover, but uh, but but the very fact of this relationship, and also if it is induced with, you know, erotics, pleasure, desire, love, have helped to uh, imagine a kind of, you know, community. Uh, that exists outside of the heteronormative ordering of life, right? So that, that, therein, if one goes to, if one looks at these little communities, you know, uh, one can see uh, um, uh, possibilities for, uh, you know, uh, um, human ordering that outsides the familiar boundaries of marriage and procreation, right? 
And once you are able to, once we are able to uh, look at communities that are forged outside of the uh, uh, you know, familiar frameworks of marriage and procreation, then we can see that um, there is a possibility for disruption of uh, uh, the ordering of, you know, uh, hetero uh, patriarchal ordering of life. So that is where the political possibility of friendship uh, lies in, in social justice movements. I mean, one of the very common uh, aspects that we have is that we see a lot of, you know, uh, uh, communities that um, uh, trans, koti, hijra communities uh, have created uh, to take care of each other um, and build networks that are outside the familiar boundaries of blood and marriage. Uh, we also see, you know, uh, many queer women, for example, uh, have communities um, that are again otherwise not visible, but uh, function to secure uh, love, support, uh, uh, you know, in times of crisis and in. Uh, you know, other times as well. And these communities exist uh, not very visibly, but they are there, uh, which uh, uh, are constantly, uh, you know, waiting to be documented, waiting to be analyzed, waiting to be talked to, uh, to show the world that there are models of living outside the familiar heteropatriarchal ordering of life. Absolutely. And I think that's... Um... That's a really lovely way to look at friendships and their political and socially disruptive potential. And that's the powerful note we ended our conversation with Dr. Niharika on. We hope that that made you rethink the power and importance of friendships in your life. It surely did for us. We release a new episode of this podcast series every Monday. So be sure to tune in. This podcast is brought to you by TS Studios the production company that brings the Swaddle's creative point of view to original podcasts and films. 